0: Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey.
1: The world's biggest problems result precisely because there are fundamental market failures and fundamental government failures. If those market failures and government failures didn't exist, the problems would not be there. Raising money is difficult. The problem we're trying to solve is extremely challenging. You're out there on the front line doing the, the work where you have market failures, government failures, everything you're trying to do hasn't really been done before. Managing a big team, building a big team, growing a team, uh, many many challenges, and then you know always having to uh, be out there fundraising at the same time.
0: I'm very pleased today to introduce Martin Fisher. Co-founder of Kickstart International. Kickstart is a non-profit social enterprise that designs, promotes and markets simple money-making tools that smallholder farmers buy and use to create profitable family enterprises. Kickstart believes that self-motivated private entrepreneurs managing small-scale enterprises play a key role in poverty alleviation. Since 1991, 160,000 successful new businesses have been started in Africa using their tools and more than 800 new businesses are created each month. In addition, Kickstart's technologies and expertise are used throughout Africa to support programs in agriculture, shelter, water, sanitation, health, and relief. Welcome, Martin, and thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me for Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs. Uh, it's a great pleasure to talk to you and to hear your journey and to find out more about Kickstart. Could you tell me a little bit about your journey to Kickstart?
1: Yeah, so I can start back in the beginning. I, I come from a very academic family. And uh, frankly, in my family, you need a PhD in physics to disqualify for the family. <laughs> um, and uh, so I dutifully went off to uh, Stanford uh, to do my PhD, not quite in physics, but in theoretical and applied mechanics in the mechanical engineering uh, department, but I did, in fact, do it in the physics lab. And I got to the two-thirds of the way through my uh, PhD and realized that in many ways, the more education you get... Uh, the fewer things you're qualified to do, um, and realized that I was now sort of uniquely qualified to either try to teach at a university, although I didn't really think I had much to teach, um, or work for big oil doing research uh, exploration, or do military research. Um, And being young and idealistic, none of those things sounded too exciting to me. Um, And I went off to Peru uh, to go trekking in the mountains and uh, sort of think a bit about my future. and that was really the first time that I came across uh, true uh, developing world uh, poverty poverty um, and started thinking, well, maybe there's something I could do with engineering and poverty. Um, and I didn't know much about uh, um, engineering and poverty or, or poverty. Um, but I came back from Peru determined to at least take a bit of time off and, and explore that. And I applied for one of these very nice fellowships you can get in America, a Fulbright fellowship, um, which basically sends you somewhere for ten months to do what you want. And uh, I wanted to go back to Peru and uh and uh take a look at engineering and poverty there. But two days before the applications with you they told me, um yes, you don't speak Spanish, uh you're not going to Peru. Um <laughs> and you're not gonna get this uh fellowship to go to Peru. And uh so I very quickly looked through uh what back then this was uh 83, um I looked through what back then was a catalog and, uh, um and saw, well, I could get a Fulbright possibly to go to Kenya and keep English in Kenya. And I changed my application to go to Kenya and got very lucky uh, to get the Fulbright uh, fellowship. And I came down to Kenya for 10 months and ended up staying for almost 18 years. Um and, uh, I thought that I would, uh, Sort of jump right into what back then was known as the appropriate technology movement or the intermediate technology movement, which had really been started by Schumacher when he wrote his famous book, Small is Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, but I got there and discovered by 1985 that actually I kind of missed the boat on that. And everybody said yes, yes, that we did that. It didn't work very well. We're on to the next big thing: <laughs> um, integrated rural development. And 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 as typically happens in development. Uh, uh, people throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I, I looked around and I did find one small group at ActionAid, and I'm, I'm sure you and your, your um, listeners say, well, no action Aid. but at that time, it was a fairly new organization um, which was doing child sponsorship and um, working in the rural areas in, in, in Kenya and other places. And there was a the small group there actually building low-cost primary schools. And there was a young man there called Nick Moon, and um, I ended up volunteering with Action Aid for the rest of my Fulbright year, um, and then ended up working for them for the next uh, five or six years. And at Action Aid, um, I did many things, but one of them was to establish a rural community uh, um, water program, where we would go into communities and dig shallow wells and put in hand pumps, and we would build the water catchments in the communities as community water sources, clean water sources. Um, I also built a, a couple of rural workshops where we mass-produced uh, animal-drawn farm equipment that we gave away to farmers. Um, I worked with youth groups and women's groups and got them set up in small businesses. Um, but uh, all these things are sort of very typical that uh, are done in development, and they all sound uh, very good. Um, but the more that I looked at them, and uh, also, Mick Moon uh, looked at them, who was um, the young man I met at actually, Um, The two of us looked at them and saw that, in fact, we were really not uh, having much uh, long-term impact and not a lot of sustainable impact, and in fact, sometimes doing more harm than good. it. Um, and so, for example, you go into a community and put in a community well, and of course, you get a lot of involvement, you get a committee established and all that good stuff. Um and uh you get participation and you you dig the well and you come in with your nice hand pump and you install it, and everybody's happy you've got nice clean water in the village um The problem there is to begin with that clean water at a water point doesn't actually do a lot to help um because unless you also provide uh sanitation and hygiene uh clean water alone has very few health impacts uh, positive health impacts um and uh that the reason for that is everything else is still you know dirty, and, and yes. so uh, unless you have enough water to wash, it doesn't really matter how clean the water is coming out of the tap, uh, because the glass is dirty, and the dirty can is dirty. <laughs> um, and um, But secondly, it's uh, even worse than that, because what happens, of course, is the, the pump works very nicely for the first four or five years, and so the committee that established has very little to do, and of course, it fans, um, and then four or five years later, when the pump finally breaks down, the only thing they remember is, oh, those nice people from Acton Aid bought us a pump. Um, and nobody's going to fix the pump because it's a tragedy of the commons because nobody owns it. And why should I fix it if you're going to use it? Why should you fix it if I'm going to use it? Um, and so then somebody steals part of the handle of the pump. And uh, Africa is absolutely littered with uh, broken down community water points. Uh, the estimates are something like 200,000 of them. Um, you know, nonetheless, we continue to put more in and all the ones that I put in at that time and all the ones that everybody else put in at that time in the, in the late 80s um, are no longer working and people are putting in new ones. Um, and uh so that's OK, but it obviously hasn't had the impact we wanted it to have. Um, the other thing, you know, giving away farm equipment sounds like a nice idea. Um, but the truth is, the farmers don't really appreciate it because it's given to them. It might not actually do what they wanted. with no skin in the game. They'd like to get something, but uh, it wasn't the farm equipment they wanted. Um, <laughs> but much worse than that, there's a guy down the road who's producing farm equipment, trying to sell it, and we, we nicely put him out of business. Um, and then, you know, four or five years later, when their donor funds run out, run out, of course, there is no farm equipment in the local community. And so that didn't do a lot of good either. Um, you know, working with youth groups and women's groups, getting them set up in businesses, it sounds like a nice idea, but it's actually very, very hard to run a business as a group. Um, and as long as we are holding their hands, you know, they, would, they would somehow prosper, prosper a little bit. Uh, but of course, um, the man down the road who was trying or woman down the road who was trying to compete with them, couldn't compete with them because they were affected with a subsidized business. Um, and then the minute we let go, the, the business would fall apart because uh, it's, it's just too difficult to to run a business as a group like that, especially with the kind of businesses that people start with. And, you know, they make good profits, but not enough to support the whole group. Um, and in fact, I remember, you know, one group where um, one of the young men actually stole the equipment and he went off um, and started a business with it. And of course, we were saying, hey, this guy's a thief, you know, we should call the police. Um But in retrospect, you know, he was probably the only entrepreneur we had. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we learned a lot of lessons um, about what works and what doesn't work. Um, and um, I think uh, the biggest lesson is, you know, individual or family ownership is, is by far the best. It's, it's difficult to own things as a group, especially actually a business. Sell things, don't give them away. Giving things away is uh, um, not only unfair, because how do you decide who to give it to? It's actually fairly costly, because you still have to go out and figure out who gets it and, and, and distribute it to these people. Um, and it's uh, certainly unsustainable, and it's also um, can do more damage than good in terms of uh, um, putting other businesses out of businesses. Um, and I always say, so I went over to Kenya, a socialist, wanting to help, and, and you know, by, by learning lessons, became a sort of small C capitalist. Um, you know, the other, the other big thing you see when you do development is that really nothing is scaled. There's all these little islands of success, these great little projects, people are doing this cool stuff. Um, But very, very little of it is actually scaled up to any real size, and and of course, if we're trying to solve the problems of the world, if we are talking about scale, we're simply not going to solve them. Um, But the biggest lesson we learned is, uh, uh, you know, in retrospect sounds very obvious, but at that time it wasn't uh, for other people, um, or even to us in the beginning, Um, and that is that if you're poor anywhere in the world, your number one need by far is really only one thing, and that is, you need a way to make more money. Everybody lives in a economy Um And uh, if you have a way to make money, you can get health care, you can get education, you can buy better shelter, um, you can um, get enough food, get better nutrition. All the things that we think about that you need, pay for clean water, um improved energy, for electricity. Of course, if you have a way to make money, all those things are available to you. If you don't have a way to make money, uh, they never will be. Um, and the truth is that everybody in the world is living in a cash economy. They need money just to survive. And everybody is making a small amount of money, um, enough to survive. They're just not making enough money to get out of poverty. Yes. Yeah. And, and the reason for this is, uh, is obviously what we need to analyze and and, and figure out, but it's actually fairly simple. Um, the farmers, of course, um, and 80% of the poor are farmers, um, You know, they grow a crop um, when the rain comes and they they harvest that crop and they sell it because they need the money more than they need the food. Uh, But they make very little money because they're all competing, selling into the same crowded market. Um, And so they don't make enough. So they send someone into the town to try to make more money. Now, in the informal sector, you know, 70, 80 percent of the businesses are petty trade. People sitting on the side of the road buying and selling the same product, all competing with each other. Very low margins um, and making enough to survive but not get out of poverty. Or they get into other things like metalwork, carpentry, tailoring, food preparation. There's about 10 or 11 businesses, 12 businesses, which is 99% of the informal sector businesses. Again, all doing the same thing. Small margins, highly competitive, um, and surviving not enough. Um, And the problem here, if you look at it, is is really that, well, frankly, everybody's in the wrong business. And it's not surprising. It's it's very, very hard to come up with a new business idea when you are uh, poor and uneducated and underexposed. Um and even if you do come up with a business idea, you can't access the tools or equipment you need to make that business viable. So tools and equipment that are affordable to buy, affordable to use, and profitable to use are simply not available. And and the reason that tools and equipment are so critical for, for businesses is because it's only by using technology um that you can actually develop lower cost, higher quality products, that you can develop new products, uh better products. Um and brand new to sort of the products or services. And so technology is a huge leverage for businesses, um, but that technology is simply not available, certainly not available in, in the local buildings app. Um, so we said, let's solve those two problems, identify businesses that millions of people can start with a small investment that would be highly profitable. And having done that, uh, let's develop, uh, design, and mass produce the tools and equipment that are required for those businesses um, that are affordable to buy, affordable to use, and profitable to use, and, and let's sell those on the open market and tell these poor but very entrepreneurial uh, people, um, hey, why don't you start this business instead of the other businesses and go down to your local shop, you can buy this equipment, and start another business. So that's uh, what we started to talk about at Action Aid, and, and they didn't really like this very much uh, because we were also saying that a lot of the other things that they were doing uh, were not really very effective. Um, and uh, so Nick and I were asked to leave ActionAid, um, and... uh and we said, well, okay, we haven't done anything wrong. We will leave in six months, but uh, um, not immediately. And six months later, um, we did leave and we established what we called in those days AFROTECH, appropriate technologies for enterprise creation, um, which we later changed to Kickstarter. Um, and so, a very simple mission um, take millions of families out of poverty by having them earn a lot more money by starting highly profitable businesses. Um, and um, So that's uh, what we decided to do. Now, the question is then, wow, but what kind of business can a poor person start? And of course, the first thing you have to know when you're starting a business is who is your customer. And when you're poor, really, you don't know any wealthy people. So you're not going to be selling to wealthy people. You don't know anybody who lives in Europe, so you're not going to be doing exports. Um, What are you going to be doing? You're going to be selling to other poor people because those are the people you know. Um, And so what do other poor people buy? Well, there's a fairly short list of what uh, the poor actually buy. Um, obviously, they pay for food, they pay for farm inputs, but they pay for shelter, um, they pay for education, they pay for health care, they pay for lighting, they pay for fuel, they pay for water. Um, and uh, there's a list you can make, but it's really only about 10 or 15 things long um, that uh, people actually uh, pay for. But that's your list of possible businesses. Yes. And if you're thinking about new businesses for the poor... Um, you're actually in luck because the poor pay a very high price per unit for almost everything they buy um, and everything they use. So they buy, for example, cooking oil by the tablespoon because they can't afford to buy the one liter bottle or the half liter bottle, or sometimes what we buy, even a you know, 10 liter bottle, um, that's just too much money because they're cash flow constrained. So they buy very, very small quantities and pay a very high price per unit. And this is true for everything, you know, they buy uh, electricity with dry cells, um, you know, batteries, which is the most expensive electricity in the world. Um, so, in fact, it shouldn't be very hard to come up with businesses that provide lower cost and better quality products to the poor. Um, and so, what we started with, with uh, machines for manufacturing low cost building materials, because everyone has to build a house. And um, so, machines are making stabilized soil blocks out of soil and mixed with a bit of cement, test of very high compression. And all of our machines are human-powered, manual machines, uh, because there's no electricity in the rural areas, and in fact across Africa, about 10% of the people have access to electricity. And uh, petrol and uh, motorized uh, um, tools and equipment are expensive, and petrol hard to get in the rural areas. Um, So we had a human-powered machine for manufacturing low-cost building blocks. We sold tens, thousands of those machines, and there's hundreds of thousands of buildings across Africa built with those uh, blocks. a machine for making cooking oil from it turns out that's a very, very good business uh, because you sell not only cooking oil, um, but you also sell the waste product, which is a very high-quality animal feed, um, and we've sold thousands of those machines. Um, machine for baling hay, it turns out it's a very profitable business because uh, if you're a smallholder farmer, you have a small plot of land, you want to feed a cow, you want to feed it, um, you have to buy hay in the dry season to feed it, and, and the bale of hay is very expensive on the side of the road because... Uh, hay baler is a very expensive uh, piece of machinery, and so a low-cost hay baler um, turns out to be a very good business. You can do contract baling, so we've sold uh, yeah, many hundreds of those machines. And those were all good. Those machines were costing about you know, $600, $700, um, but then we asked ourselves, that's great. We've started you know, tens of thousands of businesses, but how do we start millions of businesses? Um, because we really want to... Uh, have a, a serious impact here, not just a few, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands. Um, and uh, so then you ask yourself, okay, well, who are the poor? Well, as I said earlier, 80% of the poor in Africa are poor rural farmers. And if you're a poor rural farmer, you're scraping out the existence on a little plot of land. Nowadays, if you're unlucky, as little as half an acre, a quarter acre, if you're lucky, you have maybe three or four acres. Um, and you're planting with the rain, um, and waiting for the harvest and harvesting and selling what you can. And it, and it turns out that by far the best way for a rural farmer um, to make a lot more money is to move away from rainfed agriculture to irrigated agriculture. Um, and the reason for this is, as I've been describing, is that when you do rainfed agriculture, you do all plants at the same time, generally you plant a staple crop, um, all harvest at the same time. The market is very crowded. There's very few middlemen uh, compared to the amount of crop. You get very low prices. Um, and, in fact, you don't sell all the food. And uh, between 15 and 65% of the crops grown in Africa in the rain-fed harvest are spoiled before they're eaten or before they're sold. They just sit there and rot because you can't sell them. You can't eat them. You can't spoil them. Um, and then, three, four months later, in the dry season, um, Everybody's hungry. The price of food goes up by a huge amount. Um, And the best thing a farmer can do is move away from that to irrigated agriculture, where now with irrigation you can grow crops throughout the year, and especially in that long dry season when the prices go up by a huge amount. Uh, Prices of uh, uh, perishable crops will go up by a factor of 10 or 15, or even sometimes some of them 20 times uh, in the dry season um, in terms of the pricing. And even for staple crops, the uh, price will go up by 50% to uh, you know two or three times sometimes for some staple crops. Um, so clearly, if you can produce in the off season, you can make a lot more money. And with irrigation, you can do that. Um, and you can produce every day of the year. And uh, also, of course, with uh, the rains getting less reliable, even just for your rain-fed crop, irrigation becomes very useful because with uh, climate change, um, you now have to be able to grow. Um, to extend when the rain fails, you have to be able to still extend the rains uh, with irrigation in order to get your, your rain-fed crops to survive. Um, but there's very little irrigation. It turns out there's only about 4% of the farmland in sub-Saharan Africa is irrigated. Wow. So 90, 96% of the farmland is being uh, done with uh, rain-fed agriculture. Now, if you go to Asia, it's closer to 40%, 40% of the land that's irrigated. Um, and why is this? Well in Africa there has not been a tradition of irrigation. Um and uh, you know even the tradition of farming is not that old. Um and so that's one thing is the farmers have just simply not irrigated, and, and the second is the, the tools and equipment were simply not available. You could use a bucket to pull water out of a shallow well or a pond or a river and then go and put it on the plants. Um, you know, very tedious work. Um or you could try to buy a petrol pump. Um which is expensive, um, and the petrol itself is expensive, um, and uh, if the pump breaks down, of course, uh, you have to maintain it. There are no spare parts, um, and you can lose your whole crop. Um, and so this is why we said the solution here has to be a line of human-powered irrigation pumps, uh, pumps which are extremely easy to maintain, extremely low cost to buy, um, where spare parts have to be locally available and uh, you don't need any tools to maintain them because the farmer doesn't own a screwdriver, doesn't own a hammer. You have to be able to maintain them with your hands. Um, and so we designed um, our line of irrigation pumps called the Moneymaker Pumps. And why Moneymaker? Because, of course, the number one need of a poor person is to make more money. Um, and uh, our best-selling pump was our Super Moneymaker. Um, and we've since uh, changed it to the Moneymaker Max. Which is our newest version of it. Um, but the Super Money Maker we introduced in 1999 or so, and it's a little stairmaster, a little take-home. It looks like a little take-home stairmaster machine with two little pedals. You walk back and forth on the pedals. There's two pistons and two cylinders, um, and uh, you pull cool the water from a shallow well um, as deep as uh, about 25, 30 feet deep, um, and it pulls it up through that pipe. Or you can pull from a river or pond or uh, um, or a lake, and then you push the water out the other end of the, of the pump under pressure um, through a long garden hose pipe. Um, and it can even be 200 meters long. You can push it across a flat ground for a few hundred meters. You can push it up a hill, another vertical, uh, uh, 25, uh, 30 feet vertical. Um, you can power a spring it's just like a garden hose pipe under pressure. It turns out to be a very, very uh, efficient way to irrigate because you have one person out there holding the hose pipe and irrigating directly onto the crops spraying the water, putting it at the roots where it's needed, um, while the other person pumps. And with this little pump, the the super money maker, um, you can irrigate up to two acres of land if you work for a couple of hours in the morning, a couple of hours in the evening. Um, And it retails um, at about $160, $170, depending on the country you're in, including the hose pipes um, that it comes with. Uh, So hose pipes, one going into the well and one going off to the field. and uh, we've sold uh, many, many um, tens of thousands of, of those pumps, but that's still a fair amount of money. Um, so we said, can we make a cheaper pump? And we designed a pump we call the Moneymaker Hip Pump. Um, the Moneymaker Hip Pump um, looks like a bicycle pump, but a bicycle pump, uh, and we've all used bicycle pumps, you feel that your arms get very tired very quickly when you start pumping a bicycle pump. Um, that's because you're using your arm muscles in your chest, which are not your biggest muscles. But if you simply put a pivot on the end of a bicycle pump and have a base with a pivot at the end and the bicycle pump coming up from that pivot, um, you can now actually use a bicycle pump equivalent hand pump with a rocking motion. You hold the handle, you can you keep your arms straight, you're simply moving your weight back and forth and pumping the water in that way. Um, and so we have that pump, that weighs about four and a half kilos, it folds up, you can just carry it in one hand, um, and you attach again a hose pipe going into the well as deep as uh, again 25, 30 feet. Pushing it out the other side under pressure again through a few hundred meters uh, of hose pipe if you need to, or up a hill under pressure just like a garden hose. Um, and with that pump, you could irrigate about one and a quarter acres um, in a couple hours in the morning, a couple hours in the evening. And it retails, including the hose pipes, for about $70. Um, so these were our two best selling uh, products by far. Um, and um, we uh, sell these things through a network of private sector shops because it's absolutely critical for sustainability um, that you have the product locally available um, sold through the private sector where, every, where everybody is motivated and making profits by selling it. So we have retail shops, which are otherwise agribet shops that sell and fertilizer and other farm inputs. They now sell our pumps. Uh, we have them all over Kenya where we started. We then went to Tanzania. They then went to West Africa, to Mali, Burkina Faso. Um, and we now have our pumps available in something like 15, 16 countries uh, uh, across Africa um, and through private sector distributors, private sector retailers. Uh, so it's an efficient supply chain, a sustainable supply chain, um, and uh, the pumps are there. And we actually mass produce these pumps uh, in China. We used to do it in Africa, um, but it turns out we simply couldn't compete uh, uh, on price by doing it in Africa, either on the price of the pump. Um, or on the price of transport. It turns out it's cheaper to to transport something from China to Mozambique, for example, than it is from Kenya to Mozambique, uh, wow. because many, many many more ships run from China to Mozambique than, than in Kenya. Um, so now you've got the pumps out there. It turns out that's the easy part. Designing a good pump and, and getting it into a private sector distribution chain is the easy part. The hard part is convincing a farmer who's parents, grandparents, great-grandparents have never irrigated, convince them to completely switch the way they farm, convince them that they should start irrigating and start growing different crops in different seasons um, and farm in a different way. Um, And this takes a lot of education. This takes going out and demonstrating to the farmers on their farms how to do this. Um, It takes radio campaigns. It takes marketing campaigns. Um, But it's really one-on-one demonstration on the farm, which is the most convincing thing for a farmer to actually change their behavior. Now, all development is really about behavior change, positive behavior change, and that's always the hardest thing one has to do. And this is the reason that when you're trying to get major behavior change, you have to have donor funds. There's a fundamental market failure here because we're selling a low-cost product with a low margin. Um, and we're selling it to the poorest people in the world who are miles off the main road uh and very hard to reach. And then we're telling them, and we have to teach you to change your behavior. Um, and that takes a long time and a lot of work. So even though our private sector supply chain is profitable from our manufacturers to our distributors to our retailers, and even though we make a margin on selling every pump, we don't make nearly enough money to do all that education. So that's why we are non-profit. That's why we use donor funds in order to teach the farmers and educate the farmers um, about irrigation, um, and then they go down to the local shop and buy the pumps. Now you might say, well, but doesn't word of mouth just just these things take off? Um, well, it turns out that it doesn't, um, and and the reason for that is because um, if you live in a very very poor community, that um, everybody is very poor and one person gets ahead and starts to make substantial money, you don't actually talk about it. You don't tell your family, hey, I just made a whole lot of money. You don't tell your neighbors, hey, I'm rich now. <laughs> because if you do, they'll come to you and they'll suck the money away from you. They'll ask you for this, pay my school fee, pay this, pay that. Um, or they'll become jealous of you. Um, and so in poor communities, word of mouth about making money is much, much slower than one would expect or hope for. Um, and therefore, the education is needed. Now, what kind of impacts are these farmers having? Well, on average, um, when a farmer moves from not using our pump to using our pump, um, they're making an extra $700 profit per year purely from the irrigation. Now, that's a lot of money because these families are otherwise living on somewhere between uh, you know, $1,000 and $2,000 uh, total for their whole family per year. And now an extra $700 is obviously a huge amount of extra money. But it's actually much bigger than that, because what it means with irrigation is that you have that extra money in the dry season, in the season where otherwise farmers wouldn't have any money. Um, and you now, because of that, no longer fall back into poverty every dry season, as rain-fed farmers do. And so you can use that money to actually not only, of course, send all your kids to school and have food security and income security, but actually now to invest in other things. And so we find that farmers actually invest in their rainfed harvest as well. They'll have better seeds and better fertilizer for their rain-fed harvest, and they'll make more money in their rainfed harvest. Because otherwise, if you fall into poverty every dry season, by the time you need to buy the seeds and fertilizer, you have no money. But with irrigation, you do. But then they invest in dairy, they invest in uh in poultry, um, they have other money-making industries. So actually farm income, their overall farm income can go up by a factor of four. Three to four is the average um times uh three to four hundred percent increase in, in overall farm income as a result of trying to irrigate. And you can imagine that's that's hugely significant, literally taking these families that first step out of poverty. Um and uh so it's, uh, to date, um, we've sold a, a large number of these pumps. Um, we've sold, um, almost uh, a quarter million, uh, pumps. Um, and we've lifted, um, as a result of that, um, 800,000, uh, people, um, out of poverty. Um, and we actually go out and measure this. Um, and we measure this, um, by, going out and doing baseline surveys. And what what we do there is we visit the families when they first buy a pump, um, and uh, we randomly select families to visit because every farmer, when they buy a pump, they fill out a guarantee form. They get a one-year guarantee. We get a database of all the buyers. And we visit them and we interview them and find out what their life was like the previous year. And then we come back 18 months later and find out what their life was like um, that year. And so this is how we can literally say um, how much more money these farmers make Um, and that they are, in fact, and have, in fact, taken that first step out of poverty. And what we mean by that first step out of poverty is really this, is that they no longer have to worry about being able to feed their family the next day. They no longer have to worry about if they can send their kids to primary school or if they can afford the school uniform um, or pay for basic health care. But that's only the first step. Um, Survival, no longer having to worry about that income and food security on top of that, as I've explained, it means that they have some money to invest in their future. And as I've said, that money is goes to things such as starting other businesses, well, that's um, more a, education.
0: That's fascinating. I mean, you've covered a, a tremendous amount of ground and asked some great questions that followed on very logically from what you're saying. I mean, it's a great success story. A lot of interesting points you make along the way. You mentioned how, you know, with ActionAid, around that time that you noticed a lot of projects tend to be well, isolated and, and you know, not integrated. So the water part of the problem solved, but not the other parts of it connected in with it. I guess there's a life cycle, isn't there? There's a, probably a financial life cycle for some of these farmers. And, you know, it's true that in Africa, you know, only a tiny percentage of uh poor people certainly have bank accounts and so forth. And there are, you know, big uh, steps being made, I think, with some of the newer mobile technologies and, and, and other things like that. To what extent do you work with, organizations active in financial inclusion as it were to maximize the impact i suppose of this financial step up that these farmers are experiencing
1: absolutely financial inclusion is is important um, for anybody who is trying to get ahead Um, but on the other hand if we look at for example the whole microfinance movement um one does have to question and ask the question um does giving a poor person access to credit lift them out of poverty
0: yeah no absolutely i i guess i mean savings helping because a lot of people would just put the money under the bed or under, you know, and so forth. And the ability to transfer money to other people, the the ability to, you know, to, to I guess to have savings. I understand completely what you're saying about the microfinance. And there are, and I guess this is a step before that in a way, and, and an alternative, I suppose, as well, you know, to the idea that poor people can actually save.
1: Yeah, so look, savings is obviously critical, but savings for something is, is more important than just savings. Um, And the number one need of the poor is actually a way to make more money, not just to save the small bit of money they make, because they make a very small amount. And just saving money alone, yes, it smooths out your cash flow. When you have an emergency, it means that you can actually cover it. You know, your mother gets sick, you can send her to the hospital, or your kid gets sick because you have a bit of money saved up. So no doubt, savings is a useful thing. But much better to have savings which are targeted at a money-making and used than for a money-making investment. And so what we've done in this light is we have something called mobile layaway, um, where we now allow farmers to make targeted savings using their cell phones to buy a pump. And so they open an account uh, with their cell phone by making a small deposit. Um, and over time, they put more and more money into that uh, account until they have now fully paid for the pump, at which point we give them a pump. So we can go down to a local shop and get their pump. And targeted saving is extremely useful because it's very hard to save money in general, um, but it's much better if you know that you want to save money because you want that particular thing.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So this
1: is this is one of the innovations, and of course we're using uh, MTESA um, and the other money transfer mechanisms in order to allow this to happen. We're also developing a rent-to-own. Uh, um, we're doing a rent-to-own experiment right now, um, which is basically a credit uh, um, for farmers who want to get credit to buy a pump, much more difficult to do because um, one of the primary reasons that microfinance can work so well is because you actually get farmers addicted to credit. Yes. Um, and by doing so, it means you can recover the cost of customer acquisition over the course of many, many loans. Um, but if you're simply giving one loan for a capital item, of course, it's much harder to recover that cost of customer acquisition um, um, because you don't give a follow-on loan. It's also harder to get the farmers to pay because there's no promise of a follow-up loan, which is one of the key reasons that people pay their loans back with microfinance. Um, and so we're developing this using, again, cell phone technology where we're chasing the farmer now with SMSs and phone calls, which is much cheaper than going to visit them, and again allowing them to make all the money transfers using M-PESA um, and money transfer, cell phone money transfer in order to... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They pay their loan. For It's like a rent to own. It's not even a loan, it's a rent to own. That's,
0: that's very interesting. I kind of went off at a bit of a tangent because I just had spoken to somebody, I've spoken to a few people on the financial inclusion side. I'm not quite sure how to frame this, but I mean, clearly, when you started out, I suppose the, the term social entrepreneur didn't exist. <laughs> As you in, intimated, you know, that the time of Action Aid and so forth, and just generally in the world of charities or non profits, I suppose. Um, The question of profit and making profits is uh, often a highly charged one. (laughs) And it's interesting the way you framed, you know, your approach and using donor, you know, money on, on the education side or how it fits into, you know, your financing, what you want to do. I mean... What do you see the distinct, or the potential of social entrepreneurship and the idea of making a profit in the, the kind of work you're doing in Africa? Clearly, you've seen the benefit and the potential uh, of farmers to be motivated by, you know, making profits, making money. To what extent do you see the social entrepreneurial model adding to or substituting for the more classic charity or non-profit idea?
1: Selling things is a sustainable solution because the private sector is highly motivated. All the um, incentives are lined up if you sell things to people as opposed to giving them to um, So that's critical. But I think the whole movement um, towards let me make a profit while also helping the poor or solving the world's biggest problems. So let me do good and do well at the same time I think this is a huge uh, mistake. Um, and the reason I say that is quite simple, is that the world's biggest problems result precisely because there are fundamental market failures and fundamental government failures. If those market failures and government failures didn't exist, the problems would not be there. Um, so to think that you can make profit and solve these problems, well, the private sector is pretty good. They're already doing that. Millions and millions of people are doing great business across Africa, um, selling to poor people. Um, and there's a lot of businesses out there already doing this, and that's great, but that's just business. Those are not market failures. Uh, but the world's biggest problems, extreme poverty, having people earn a lot more money, um, climate change, um, you know, diseases of the poor, the, the biggest problems in the world are never going to be solved by a purely profitable, uh, um, business. Um, precisely because they are there, because of government and market failures. Now, in the U.S. and in Europe, there's huge government subsidies, which help us to start businesses. All the roads, all the infrastructure, everything is bought by the government. There's also huge tax rebates when you're starting businesses. Massive subsidies. Farmers in America are all subsidized. Farmers in Europe are all subsidized. Farmers in even the Middle East are all subsidized, even in India. Um, <laughs> And, uh, so now to think that you're going to go to these countries where the government failures and are no government subsidies and are no infrastructure and no roads and no education, all the things that the government normally pays for, um, and market failures in that you're looking at major, major behavior change that you have to convince people to do, um, based on historical facts. Um, and do that and make profit doing it, selling to the very poorest people. Um, it's just a, is a huge, uh, um, error to, in thinking, to, to think that. Um, so, look, I'm all in favor of any kind of business working in Africa. Any kind of business creates wealth. Any kind of business um, is, uh, you know, creating jobs. And it's all very, very useful. All business, in my mind, uh, is social business. It all does uh, good for, for the world. Okay, you might argue that cigarettes is a, an exception to that that, of one or two. But generally, every business already creates uh, huge social value. Um, but business alone... Doesn't get problems, because um, that is where you need targeted philanthropy and targeted donations in order to overcome those market failures, overcome those government failures. Now, the hope is that once you overcome them, you can leave in place a situation such that purely possible businesses can and will thrive to continue solving those problems. But getting to that point might take many, many years. And just as an example of how difficult it is to change behavior. It took Americans and Europeans over 15 years to adopt personal computers. It took us over 12 years to adopt cell phones, and when I'm talking about adopt, I'm talking about before they actually took off on any kind of scale. Um, and huge amounts of marketing that had to go in. Um, and the early adopters were very wealthy people who could pay a very high price. Um, and as a result, um, the companies could start to make some early profits off those wealthy people. Um, but we don't have those those very wealthy people buying uh, products for the poor in Africa. Um, and uh, behavior change does take a lot of effort. Even if you look at Coca-Cola, it took Coca-Cola something like 10 years to start being profitable in Africa, spending billions of dollars on marketing. Because even getting people to switch to buy a sticky, addictive drink um, it was a major behavior change that had to happen. Um, now coca is a big enough company, they could do that. Um, But even today, in in some countries in Africa, is
0: not yet possible. It's very interesting what you say. I mean, it seems in many ways you're you're a hybrid in the sense that, you know, you're funded by donations and, and part of the organization is funded by profits. I've spoken to, you know, several entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, I suppose, doing something similar like that at Embrace, which has a $200 baby incubator. And part of that is funded from donations and foundations and uh, and things like that part of it is a profit making arm and so forth the danger of, of relying on the of on donations and so forth is you end up trying to satisfy the donors objectives more than the necessarily the the people on the ground you're working with and i suppose the other idea that the the margin it provides for a measure of sustainability um, and I just spoke to somebody who's been on a long journey converting a, a, a kind of traditional charity in, into a social enterprise because of the concern. I mean, partially because of the, the information they n- needed to provide donors and so forth. And that wasn't helping them and their business, but the sustainability of, of what they were doing and what their goal is to build sustainable enterprises in the countries in Africa they're working. They work in with homeless and, and, and building houses and things. Very strong believers in power of uh, you know sustainability coming from a measure of profitability, not necessarily profit maximizing or something like that, I, I hear what you 're saying in terms of your concern about the idea of making profit in areas of extreme social failure. So how do you see it going forward? I mean these kind of hybrids seem to work in some some contexts
1: yeah, absolutely look this The ultimate goal should be to leave in place a profitable business model where the sustainable market demand and sustainable supply and the business world is taking over and selling the goods and services, the products and the services, um, which enable poor people to have those goods and services. Um, And that ultimately should be what we're trying to to get to, because there really are only a few exits from philanthropy. That's the, the best and most sustainable exit. The other one is that the local governments take over and provide the goods and services. Um, Or the third one is that we actually solve the problem. We get rid of smallpox, we get rid of malaria. Um, But certainly the most sustainable outcome will be to leave in place a for-profit business model for the sustainable demand and sustainable supply. And you've created an example where other suppliers come in and start, uh, businesses come in and start meeting this demand and supply. But what one has to look at is the size of the market failure. Um, If you're trying to sell housing to the emerging middle class in, in Kenya, there's no market failure. They all aspire to, they want housing. If you're trying to sell cell phones um, to people, there's there's not a big market failure. People aspire to having a phone. Wealthy people were the early adopters of phones. Um, everybody wants to have a phone. A phone is very, very cheap already. You can get a phone for $6 uh, by the time the price came down. In the beginning, there was a market failure, and donor funds were used in the beginning to some degree, and but not as big a market failure as with other things because the early adopters were very wealthy people in the urban areas. It didn't cost a lot to serve them. Therefore, the cell phone companies could come in and serve them. Immediately, therefore, phones became very aspirational because wealthy early adopters were spending a lot of money on that. Everybody wanted phones. There's about four or five, or well, about six magical properties of phones, which enabled them, cell phones, which enabled them to take off and overcome this market failure fairly quickly. Um, but in other market failures, um, the biggest market failures, which is the world's biggest problems, um, you actually have to have a level of philanthropy to come in and help overcome that market failure. Now, yes, we want donors, of course, who get behind what we're doing and don't say, yes, but I want you to do something different over here, because that's where you get a uh, shift in your focus, and that's where you get mission creep, because you're following the money, um, and that's where you get the very, very ineffective program. Um, but I think if social enterprises are concentrating um, on using donor funds to overcome market failures and leave in place a sustainable supply and sustainable demand, so that not only maybe something that spins out of them, but other businesses can come into that space. that What we're really trying to create is an environment of uh, a viable, competitive business space that now does provide clean water to people, that does provide solar lanterns to people, that does provide all these things that we're thinking that poor people need, and they do. Um, but, and, uh, but first you have to overcome the market failure so if you're trying to sell uh, you know, toilets to poor people in the rural areas uh, first you have to educate them that they need toilets
0: What about something like M-Pesa profit making um, dealing with a, a big market failure presumably in terms of exclusion financial exclusion
1: So, so M-Pesa to begin with um, was not uh, really dealing once, once, okay. So, if you look at M-Pesa, so M-Pesa is, as I said, it's a it started off with a cell phone company, right? It Started with Safaricom, and Safaricom was an extremely successful uh, um, cell phone company, um, which started in the urban areas, tackling wealthy markets, um, and then spread into the rural areas with cell phone entrepreneurs who are now offering a phone call service. And there was no market failure around a phone call service because a phone call service was cheaper than getting on a bus to go to the city and give a message. And people already knew about phones. It's just the fixed-line phones didn't work. Um, and then um, it went down. As the prices got cheaper, it got so everybody could own their own cell phone. Um, so m then was built on top of that background of a, of a whole network of uh, um, people who already had cell phones. Now... And PESA was an extremely extremely innovative and extremely smart um business model. Um where they put the agents in place, they figured out how to make all those agents uh, so that agents themselves are entrepreneurs, um, and actually self finance um the, the credit, the agents self finance that phone credit, which is an extremely smart business idea, um and they're entrepreneurial, they're driven to, to drive the business. Um but money transfer has from the rural areas into the urban areas, it's always been happening because, sorry, from the urban areas into the rural areas, it's always been happening because you send, you send somebody into the city to make money to send back home to the parents and the family at home, right? So that wasn't a market failure. That was already a dynamic business. It's just it was extremely inefficient. Um, and it was happening by people getting on buses. And so by saying, hey, we can do money transfer using our cell phones, and we've got a great business model where we've got these agents out there and they're entrepreneurs themselves, fantastic, right? So it worked, but the size of the market fairly wasn't very big because they were only making something that already existed and was extremely inefficient and expensive much cheaper. But they didn't have to educate people, hey, you should and you could be transferring money to your parents back home. People already knew that. People were already doing it. So that's why I say you have to look at the size of the market failure to understand how much of a subsidy is needed. Now, on top of that, M-Pesa spent $20 million in their first year in marketing alone to build their market. Now, not many social enterprises get that kind of marketing, <laughs> $20 million to, to blow up the market. It takes a large investment to get a market going. If M-Pesa hadn't been riding on the back of Safaricom and hadn't got money from DFID um, in order to launch, uh, they also wouldn't have been able to do it um, easily without without philanthropy. Um so there's a space for left a space for donor funds to come in even with something uh, like um MPSA where the size of the market failure is fairly small. On the other hand, if you look at what we're doing, which is trying to convince farmers to change the way they've been farming for generations, um, that is a major, major change in behavior. Um, yeah. and we're not yeah. just saying here's a here's a better or cheaper way to do something you're already doing. Yeah. Right, which is what MPESA said. But this is actually a complete change in behavior. It's a much bigger market failure. Therefore, you need much more money in terms of that marketing and the behavior change. And of course, we don't have budgets like twenty million dollars,
0: right? Ah, so yeah. To do that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can you just tell me a little bit about? I mean, that you mentioned the importance of scale, and that's clearly been something that you know has been—I was once at the back of your mind, at the forefront of your mind—as uh, Kickstart has grown. This idea of how to, you know, really maximize or to how to really scale up what you do. What have you learned about scaling, and what how how have you approached that?
1: Oh, yeah, so I think a couple of key things, uh, and especially recently as I've been thinking more about this, is um, that you know small, social enterprises selling things are great, um, but us alone, we're not going to solve the big problems. Um, as I said a couple times, what we have. To to do is create an ecosystem where other players come in and also work on the same problem um, and also solve it and join us in solving that problem. Um, And so what you want to do as you're thinking about scaling a particular social enterprise, in my mind, is first of all, you want to simplify your model down to its very fundamental basics. Because if you're going to scale something, the simpler it is, the easier it is to scale. So what are the most basic things of our model? Well, it is Fantastic technology, the right products for the right problem, which is convincing farmers to irrigate, because irrigate, if you're a smallholder farmer, it's the best thing you can do to make money. And so now they would need the right products to irrigate. So we've, we've got our up of pumps. We've got the two I mentioned We're developing solar pumps, We're developing lower cost pumps, other products. They're so a great product. And then a private sector supply chain, so that the products and the spare parts are locally available to the people, whether you need so those are two fundamental parts of our product, of our of our model that really ensure sustainability and ensure that with the right products getting to the people now, um, we actually have um, the real impact. But in terms of the marketing bit that I've just been talking about, um, one-on-one sales, which is what we've been doing, working now uh, getting out there in the field and training individual farmers, there's actually many many other organisations that can help us with, that. and so we're partnering. And all across Africa, you have organizations from governments to NGOs, to big businesses, people like mining companies who are doing CSR, um, who are now working with literally millions of smallholder farmers, trying to empower those smallholder farmers and and train those smallholder farmers um, with better farming techniques, with water and sanitation, with healthcare, for them to add irrigation into what they are already doing with those with those farmers. Um, the very small marginal cost compared to what we're going out there and beating those farmers one-on-one and convincing those farmers to irrigate. So what we're doing right now is working on a partnership program um, whereby partnering with these other NGOs all across Africa, we can reach scale much, much more quickly, but at the same time ensuring that we have the right product and even in those countries a local supply chain where the pumps and the spare parts are locally available. Um, so so I think it's, like I said, about, first of all, simplifying your model down to its very basics, um, and then looking at who else out there could help you to scale something up to a much larger um, size. Um, and we've got a long way to go. You know, we've, we've sold a quarter million irrigation pumps. Um, we reckon that for Africa to feed itself. We need to sell, get about a two, about 25 million farmers irrigating. Right now, all the farmers in Africa, with 25 million of them irrigated, Africa could feed itself and it could um, actually, um, you know, survive. I, I, right now, Africa, with the population growth rate the way it is, it's gonna be a very hard time surviving with only 4% of the farmers irrigating. It's in the dry season, there's massive hunger, um, and there's very, very few uh, farmers who are making any kind of money. With irrigation, if a quarter of the farmers were irrigating, or 20%, um, that would be radical change. So that's our target. How do you get the 20, 25 million farmers irrigating? You know, we're at 1% of that with a you know, quarter million. Um, and to get to that big scale, it has to be through partnerships, um, local supply chains um, and the right products.
0: In general, people have noted or commented that, that you often find uh, social businesses or you know uh, charities, I guess, working independently on problems. And there's certainly less mergers and acquisitions or a fusion or joining of organizations to work together. I guess that's a very important way of maximizing your impact.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, mergers and fusions, there's probably space for that. Those are, those are fairly complicated, as even they are in the private sector, of course, to make them work well. Um, but there's certainly space for that to happen. Um, and, you know, one of the challenges is that it used to be that all the big organizations uh, used to just give things away to partners. And, and we don't believe in that. We want to actually people to sell things to partners because so it's more sustainable. But that's actually switched in the last 10 years. More and more, even of the big organizations, like uh, people like World Vision and the like, Uh, actually realizing that selling things is more sustainable than giving them away. Um, and so now we say, great, now you can sell and finance our pumps, which really will transform farmers' lives, um, as opposed to, you know, selling them something else, which really won't, or giving them credit for their small, you know, trading businesses, which really won't transform their lives. Um, so, uh, absolutely, it's, uh, it's that partnership, um, with organizations that have to be like-minded enough so that you don't uh, sabotage your business model. Um, but uh, still leaving room for people with, you know, slightly different visions and different ideas. So if there's an organization that they're trying to empower women, well we know our pumps hugely empower women, um, and they can use our pumps in their programs. Uh somebody who's working on adaption to climate change, well of course our pumps allow farmers to adapt to climate change. You know, they have their focus, introduce our pumps into their program. Um, you know, another organization about livelihoods, fantastic. Our pumps help with the livelihoods. Um by partnering with all, all these different organisations, we can we can scale rapidly.
0: What keeps you going when things <laughs> when things are difficult? I mean, this is how how many years is it now, Martin?
1: I started uh, really started Kickstarter in 1991, so it's uh, a lot of years.
0: You've been on a long um, journey,
1: and um, you know, of course, it's always difficult. Um, uh, raising money is difficult. Um, the problem we're trying to solve is extremely challenging. Um, You know, you're out there on the front line doing the the work, whether you have market failures, government failures, everything you're trying to do hasn't really been done before. Um, Managing a big team, building a big team, growing a team, uh, many, many challenges. um, And then, you know, always having to uh, be out there fundraising at the same time. But what keeps us going is always looking at the impacts. Um, You know, we've got a great team of of people um, at Big Start and then seeing the impact, um, on the families, individual families. Um, well, you know, I met a woman the other day, and she was telling me the story, and you know, she'd been widowed about uh, eight years ago and left on a two-acre plot in Western Kenya, and she had literally absolutely nothing because her husband had been in the city sending her a little bit of money every month, and she had these two young teenage kids, you know, 10, 11, 12, um, and she went to her father-in-law and said, hey, can you help me? I have nothing. And he said, well, I can't because I'm a poor holder farmer, but I will try to help you to get a pump. And he managed to get her and help her to buy a, a pump. And she told me the first thing she did is, you know, she employed a young man um, to start working with her um, on the field and started irrigating that two acres and, and growing kales and growing cabbages and sent the kids back to school. Um, and then she told me after two years, she had enough money to start a dairy. She bought a number of dairy cows, built a dairy house. Um, after another two years, she started a poultry farm. Um, and then after five years, she had enough money to rent more land and buy a petrol pump. And she told me, today, my daughter is at University in Denmark. My son is at a top private school in Nairobi, and all of the fees come from this farm. Wow. Now, well. we have literally thousands and thousands of stories like that I could tell you, but, but those are the stories that keep me going. Right. That's, that's the impact that, that we're having. It's taking a family who had nothing, and on their own hard work, they're the ones doing the work. They're the ones that keep, you know, they're the ones I'm most proud of. Um, they make the change. We just provide a tool that they access and they buy and they use. Um, but they just take their families out of poverty because they've moved to irrigation, which is such a powerful way to get out of poverty in Africa when so little of the land is irrigated. It's just such a huge opportunity for so many people. Um, and we're just making that
0: possible. Yeah. Now you mentioned so this is a, a, a question I probably should have asked earlier, but I mean, you mentioned you brought your pump price down to seventy dollars, and you, you've uh, there are some very strong, you know, advantages of selling it in, in terms of the motivation of the farmers and so forth. Have you looked at what the penetration would be if you had it at thirty-five dollars, for example? And just what have you looked at projects like? I mean, I'm sure you thought about, you know, they're like not crowdfunding, but a kiva for water pumps. How would that affect the, your model in terms of somebody providing money to help partially fund some and to what widen distribution.
1: Yeah. So to begin with, we we believe in the farmer having skin in the game and at a commercially viable um, price point because we want the private sector suppliers to be there. We want the retail shops to be making money. We want the wholesalers to be making money. Otherwise, yeah. we're setting up an unsustainable system. Right. So we don't we don't believe in giveaways. Of course, Kiva doesn't do giveaways. They they yes. help mfis to do loans yes and all the kiva does is just a front end that lends money to mfis who then do the hard work of getting the money to the farmers and get recovering the loans and getting the money back to kiva so kiva is a great way for mfis to raise additional working capital but they don't actually work with any any single small enterprise um it's through them through the local partners right and we do partner with kiva on our rent own for example uh, okay they can, they can provide us money but but um the $35 pump, we're working on the $35 pump. It's a matter of uh, design innovation, getting the price down that low and still being able to irrigate the half an acre with I mean, the cost recovery on all our pumps in the first harvest. You way more than make your money back within three or four months. Um, and so we can do it with a $35 pump, which we're working on. Uh, we'll let you know, but uh, I do think getting the price down that uh, low will, will make a big difference. And the solar pumps, because Solar will be the future of, uh, irrigation in Africa eventually as it's coming down in price. We're working on what will be the lowest cost solar pump, uh, in Africa, which will retail for, for you know, under $400. Or, um, but still very, very expensive for the farmer. Now with a the solar, there's an advantage you can do pay as you go potentially. We're working on that. Um, so there's, um, you know.
0: Plenty of innovation.
1: Yeah. And the solution is about uh, getting irrigation technologies, and, and pumps are critical for irrigation. People say, what about uh, um, drip irrigation? Drip irrigation is nice, but you still need a pump to get the water from the well to the tank in order to put it into the drip lines. That's what people forget. Um, so even, and many, many of our pumps are used as drip kits, but drip kits are expensive, they're complicated, much, much easier to use a pressurized hose pipe, and almost as water efficient. Uh, um, and much simpler if they get that, they'll be changed to, uh, to a pressurized hose pipe than it get to drip.
0: Uh, last question. What advice would you give aspiring social entrepreneur or change maker on their journey from what you've learned over the years?
1: I think you do have to understand the, the market failure size of the market failure and what it is you're trying to solve. How big of a problem can you solve? Um, I do think that you should not jump straight into a for profit model. Um, if you're really trying to solve a major problem, you have to understand that subsidies are still required that um, you're actually probably much better off with a hybrid model or with a non-profit model that then sells things on the side. And there is some re-education of our, of our donors about this that has to happen um, because everybody seems to want to do well and, and uh, make money off um, selling things to the poor. Um, but you can't do that with the market failures. Um, just stick with it um, because there's a huge number of frustrations and, and uh, challenges. Um, and, uh, you know, get out there and understand your market, get out in the field and, and learn who your customers are, um, before you jump in with your idea. Um, you know, it took, uh, took me five or six years, uh, before Nick and I actually figured out enough to know what could really work. Um, and hopefully you can do it quicker than that, but it certainly, uh, required getting out there and, uh, understanding the customer base, understanding the problem, understanding the market failure and uh, what you're going to do about it. Um, And uh, keep working hard.
0: Thank you, Martin. That's uh, been very inspiring and very interesting, and and just great work that you're doing. So uh, I wish you the very best with Kickstart and with this uh, uh, focus you have on wealth creation and and and, and, and the farmers. And uh, and thank you very much for your time today.
1: Well, thank you very much, and uh, hope we'll be in touch again
0: soon. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.